Hi, everyone. Welcome to the November 13th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. COVID numbers continue to hit new record highs in Colorado with various policy implications. Several school districts have announced plans to return to remote learning immediately or soon. Several county health officials are urging for stronger stay-at-home mandates to get numbers under control. And a record-breaking 84% of the state's ICU beds are in use, with hospitals preparing for even more patients. Penny Calhoun from Westward, with really no tangible uh, uh, relief in sight, we're now starting to talk about if... If stronger mandates are coming down, uh, do you see that on the horizon? Well, of course, we know COVID is a hoax, and it was it's ending on November third. So we really don't have to pay any attention. I guess the media is a little slow to get the message. They can quit reporting on it. Everybody's numbers are horrible. They're horrible across the country. They are truly awful in Colorado and getting worse. We don't know what Jared Polis announced today at his press conference because it's right as we film this. But he has been very data-driven, really wants to have counties make the decision if they want to get tougher. And as we've seen, many counties have. I mean, Pueblo put in their own curfew. Denver didn't put in a curfew but tells everyone to get home at 10 o'clock. And I did last night when I was coming home after 10 o'clock notice that there's a sign that says curfew is 10 o'clock. So Denver has a mixed message, too. We know we have to get a handle on this as much as we can before the holidays, which could make it worse with gatherings. A Denver restaurant poll, Colorado restaurant poll, just came out today that says if there is another shutdown, 25% of the restaurants say they will close immediately or consider it very seriously. So if we want to return at some point to some semblance of the world we know today in Denver, we're going to have to behave, maybe get takeout at those restaurants so they can stay in business, but get the numbers down. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It seems to me there's some interesting local control uh, points here because you have states making decisions independently, and then you have governors like Jared Polis who want counties to make decisions. But even within the metro area, there's health departments that would necess- would maybe have uh, a point to say, like Tri County, that don't necessarily supersede a county because a county can say, like Douglas County, they want to override that, but. Who should make the call if we're going to have different mandates come down? It's probably best at a local level because the situation in in the city and county of Denver is different from Sedgwick County or or lots of other places. You you remember those innocent days back in March and April when it seemed like we were living in a a science fiction novel? As opposed to now, which is more like a political, uh, dystopian political novel. The difference between now and then is... Lockdowns and the people who want them have have just lost all credibility because everyone has seen how much the lockdowns were based on political favoritism and, and special exemptions. So marijuana and alcohol are essential businesses, but tobacco isn't. The mayor of New York City rocks out in the streets celebrating the, the Biden victory. And at the same time, he's sending his police to ferret out those Orthodox Jews who, who he's been persecuting for so long and, and who have much smaller gatherings that he doesn't want to allow. Lockdowns are mass destruction on small business, and that leads to terrible health consequences across the board and ter- lots of other terrible consequences for, for everyone. You know, as Patty's saying, people should be cautious, and masks don't solve everything, but they're a good idea. They help somewhat. Um, and by the way, they help even more if you wear them over your mouth and your nose. And 
if you want to get to the pro level, actually make the mask have a seal around your nose because that means you have fewer incoming uh, viruses and fewer outgoing viruses. I actually very much appreciate the fact that you have pointed out, as a public service announcement, yeah. David, the, the effectiveness of uh, masks. I've seen uh, several forms and uh, terrible forms of yeah. uh, mask wearing in different places I go yeah. to. Uh, Eric Sonderman, political analyst and columnist with uh, Colorado Politics. We go to you next. Uh, you know, there's a lot of numbers to look at here. I guess the one that crosses a lot of different um, and not just political, but uh, it crosses a lot of uh, boundaries for people, is ICU beds. Because that's not just about COVID. If a loved one of mine has a stroke or a heart attack, I want an ICU bed available for them, regardless if they have COVID or not, or if they're perfectly immune to it. That is an issue, but I also don't know if that bears in mind of if it should be a county or state decision. Uh, when you look at the metrics, what stand out to you? Well, I think you you stole my thunder, Dominic. I was going to talk about ICU beds as well. I think that is a frightening statistic. It is a frightening trend line uh, that we're over 80, 85 now percent occupancy on ICU beds around the state. And and the numbers are ticking up. They are not ticking down. We are not even to mid-November yet. Uh, And, um, you know, we have a long winter ahead of us. And it's, it's quite frankly a scary time. It's a scary time for frontline workers. It's a scary time for people, quote unquote, in the vulnerable population, such as my wife and myself. It is, it is a scary time all around. We have a president in the White House who was never that invested in this fight against COVID and now is on to his newest hoax. Instead of COVID being the hoax, I guess his election loss is is the new hoax that he is preoccupied with. But we have no serious intent coming out of this administration in Washington. We have 68 days, if my math is right, until a new administration takes office. We have Governor Polis, who I think has done a very solid job in the seven, eight months that we've been at this so far. But I do need to say it seems to me that he is, for being, as Patty indicated, a very data-driven guy, seems that in the last few weeks there's a little bit more politics entered into the equation than there might have been before. I think he understands people are tired, psychologically tired, physically tired, financially tired, and that there's only so far he can push the lockdowns, the restrictions, the mandates. But it may need to go farther if the numbers keep ticking up. Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist, uh, you round out our remote panel here. Natasha, it feels like at least one part of the conversation we're not digging really into uh, is testing and tracing. And again, I don't know if that's a statewide or a countywide kind of decision, but uh, between that and other metrics, what stands out to you? Well, tracing, I think, is a very interesting thing to talk about because we've seen some successes with that on an international level. Um, The problem is when you have cases that increase as quickly as they have increased here in Colorado and within the United States as a whole, it becomes very difficult to trace where those people have been, which then makes it very difficult to do really pointed um, quarantine for people who may have been exposed. And that's going to continue to be an issue unless we find a way to slow down these numbers. I think one of the hardest things about dealing with COVID is the 
delay. It's that if everyone this evening, after they turn off the show, um, stopped doing things outside, stopped having gatherings, stopped, um, you know, shut down as much as they could on a personal level, we still wouldn't see the impact of that for several weeks. And that's very difficult, I think, for people to, to sort of deal with. We're dealing in sort of this sped up timeline and also this moment where we live in every single second of, of staying in our homes. So as we look at this, you know, if we were to do that behavior and stop going out today, it would be weeks before we saw that, but it would be weeks before hospitalizations would go down. And pretty soon you see 2020 tick away. You know, I think myself, and I certainly have this conversation with many other people, are already looking at 2021 as this miraculous time to sort of reset. And I just want to start cautioning those people and myself that the virus does not care if it's December or January. And the timeline that we're on is going to be a long one, even if we make those choices today. Natasha, I, I think you bring up a lot of good points. And I think about, especially since we're, we're coming up on a Thanksgiving holiday, I remember not so distant past. I was a, a grown adult, so it wasn't that many years ago, that Thanksgiving Day, when it really came down to essential services, and David, what you were talking about, the only place you could go to when somebody forgot Cool Whip for pumpkin pie was 7-Eleven. Those were the only people open. Whereas in grocery stores open, they closed at noon. Everything else was closed. There has been a time in our lives when we were able to figure out what was truly essential. Maybe that is a, is a, is a wake-up call, not just everything that we want to go to and uh, just having small business closed. It's, there's going to be more interesting conversations about this to come. Let's get to our next topic. State legislative leaders elected new House leadership for the 21 legislative session over the last 10 days. Representative Alec Garnett will be the new Speaker of the House with Denea Escar taking the House Majority Leader post. Republicans elected Representative Hugh McKean as Minority Leader and Tim Geithner as Assistant Minority Leader. Uh, David, when it comes to House and Senate leadership uh, positions, that's something that can be kind of inside baseball. But these people really control how the bills get introduced, what committees they get to. Uh, there, there's a lot of what happens in government that is controlled by these uh, folks on both sides of the aisle. Uh, what stuck out to you when you saw the implications, when you saw the results of the re- elections this last 10 days? Well, the, the Colorado legislature is like a medium or, or small high school. People spend a lot of time together and they get to know each other really, really well. And so I think one reason the, the Democrats chose Alec Arnett as their speaker for the upcoming session and, and chose him as the majority leader for the, the session that's been completed is they do know him well and they know he's a guy who, who listens sincerely. He is not – he will listen. You may not always convince him, uh, but, but he's, he's a great listener and, and a thoughtful uh, man. And as you say, as speaker, in some ways, he will be the most powerful uh, uh, political official in, in Colorado. And yet, ironically, there, there are very few speakers who ever go on to uh, be elected to Congress or, or become governor. And the, the last one who actually did was John Vanderhoof, who was Speaker of the House in 1970 and then became uh, governor in, in 1973. So usually the, the speakership is, a, is an apex and not a stepping stone, and speakers give it that kind of uh, uh, perform their duties with, with the appropriate seriousness. And, and so like almost all House speakers, Alec Garnett is, is respected by his peers and he's highly competent. And I think like the, the best of his predecessors, he also has a sense of humility. 
Eric, it looked like the election for Speaker of the House went pretty, according to Hoyle, but when we got to majority leader and minority leader, it got a little bit more competitive and probably exposed some potential uh, political situations for the session. What do you think? Yeah, I actually think Colorado is reasonably well served, particularly by the Troika in the House. Alec Garnett is a very able guy. Uh, I've been impressed with the Denea Escar. You and I did a debate that she was a part of on one of the ballot issues this fall, uh, Dominic, and, and she's well-spoken and smart and thoughtful. Hugh McKean is probably the the most notable of this these three as the new House Minority Leader because he's a rather stark departure from his predecessor, Patrick Neville, and Patrick Neville had taken, taken himself uh, out of the contention knowing that he didn't have the votes. But that House Republican caucus is still very much split. And Tim Geithner, who is the assistant minority leader sitting right there at McKean's side, is very much out of the Neville camp and the, the damn the torpedoes camp of the Republican Party. So that, that caucus is very much fractured. I don't think the Democratic caucus is quite as fractured, but there is a tension between the Boulder, Denver access and the rest of the state. In Garnett, you have somebody from the Boulder, Denver access. In Escar, you have somebody from Pueblo uh, and a different part of Colorado and a different perspective. I think it's a it's a decent uh, a decent lineup. We haven't gotten to the Senate. I'll let others tackle that. Well, speaking of the Senate, I mean, uh, Natasha, we really didn't get any drama there. A lot of the same positions are held by uh, similar people, maybe further down ticket. I'm not sure who's still majority whip in the Senate, but uh, the, the majority, the, the main positions remain the same. When you look at the, the House results, uh, what were the headlines for you? I think one of the big ones is that State Representative Leslie Harrod will be joining the JBC committee, which, of course, is a very powerful committee in any given year. But in this particular year, that committee, I, I, I personally am going to spend a lot of time focusing on what the, what they're prioritizing. This is going to be a session unlike any others. You know, normally by this time, there starts to be rumors of, of things that are, are happening and, and what bills might be coming up. I think because of COVID and because of the budgetary constraints, people are going to hold off a little bit on making those plans and sort of responding more in real time. As a result, what priorities um, I might have guessed at, say, last January for this year is going to be very different than I think what plays out um, when they actually come into session. And it's going to be a session that looks very different than in the past. You know, we talked about the camaraderie um, within the state house already. Uh, that's going to look a little different on opening day uh, as, as people start to rethink what politics looks like. They had a little bit of experience on that in the spring. Um, but just like everyone else, from schools to sports teams to businesses, the legislature is going to have to look at doing business a little differently this year. Patty, uh, keeping up with what Natasha's point is, half of the session last in 2020, this year, uh, went uh, as planned and then, like the rest of the world, got turned on its ear in March. It's going to start on its ear in January. Uh, do you expect that to be different, especially with the leaders that we saw elected this last couple of weeks? Well, they've got some unfinished business they'll need to pick up again. And it wasn't just coming back quickly and finishing the, what they already had on their agenda from COVID. They had some new things they added in, like the police reform bill that passed so quickly. And now they might have to do a few fixes on some of the things that went fast. The JBC has a very tough job ahead. Interesting that Leslie Harrod made it on. There was a lot of backroom dealing on the Republicans, and even Patrick Neville took off after one of his um, one of his 
fellow colleagues who just was being nasty about it. So I think the Republican Party is in for a very tough rebuilding period. The Denver City Council approved a $1.3 billion city budget this week, making few changes to Mayor Hancock's original proposal. The budget includes cuts of over 10% from the 2020 budget, with the warning that more cuts may come due to fallout from more COVID restrictions. Uh, Eric, when we looked at election night results, it seemed that voters and from proposals from city council members uh, wanted to get a lot of control back from the mayor. And that as a system, not just from Mayor Hancock, just as the charter. But when we saw the, the budget results, it didn't seem that there was a whole lot of uh, changes. Is that because there's not a whole lot of change to make when you're making that many cuts? Yeah, I think uh, having that budgetary power, or at least a little more budgetary power than they used to, is a lot more attractive for council when you're doing addition than when you're doing subtraction. 10% uh, as your question indicated, Dominic, is a starting point. It may not be where this ends up, but it's uh, it's it's the new baseline. Uh, that is a that is a tough number, and and, and there's going to be pain felt, and it's going to be pain evident to the citizens of Denver. I still am struck by the number of what I call mega projects that are proceeding apace as if COVID never happened and as the world post-COVID is going to look identical to the world pre-COVID. I particularly think of the convention center and others, um, not to mention DIA, which has already been dialed way back and is now just going to be the shopping mall improvement without the other more substantive improvements and renovations we were promised. Uh, I know those are different budgets. It's not the general fund budget. But still, when you see the city spending that kind of money, it makes you scratch your head. Finally, I think with this election now in the rearview mirror and, you know, one of these days Donald Trump will realize that uh, that his days in the, in the Oval Office are, are time limited now. I think that our attention around this table and around this community is going to shift. And I think there will be more discussion about Denver, where Denver is headed, Denver as a city in crisis uh, with a governance crisis on top of other crises. And uh, this is not the last time we will be talking about this. Natasha, were you surprised not to see more pushback from a city council that generally over this last year has uh, wanted more control over the reins? I think it's such a moving target. I mean, putting together a budget in this this climate right now is nearly impossible. I, you know, to make light of it, I would say it's kind of like whether you should book international travel in 2021. Like, eh, maybe. <laughs> and that's what the budget is going to be like this year. It, it, it will be very serious conversations. You know, one thing that is important, and we spend a lot of time talking about at this table, but just in, in Denver media in general, is the booming years. Denver's had a lot of growth and a lot of money to throw around for a while. But it wasn't that long ago that we also had some pretty tight times. What I think it'll be worth looking at right now is the investments that we made during those booming years. Are they going to pay off now that we're going to be looking at leaner times? And which one? in particular. And no matter what, you know, if you don't have enough money to go around, we can certainly always boost up our em empathy and um, activism and involvement in our community. So it'll be interesting to see how Denver reacts to all of those situations. But I'm certainly hoping the empathy can be there as we move into more uncertain times. Patty, Denver voters certainly showed empathy when they approved a, another a round of tax increases. We went for homelessness, think one for uh, climate change. Do you think maybe city council is hoping that can backfill at least some areas? Well, I think we would have had a tougher budget discussion if the homelessness tax hadn't gone through, for example, because there's certainly a push to do more 
The question is what exactly. So I think that might have made things tougher Monday, but it is so hypothetical that why have a huge fight yet? Because you may be cutting more rather than fighting over crumbs that still remain on the table. Those have been swept off. There is nothing left. It's going to be a very, very interesting 2021. David, where should the council and mayor be focused if they're looking at more cuts? What are the priorities Denver needs to see? Getting the economy going again is the only solution. Denver gets over half of its government revenue from from sales taxes, and a, a great deal of the other half uh, comes from various other excises and taxes and, and, and fees on, on business activity and commerce. So when you, you have less business, you, you have less tax revenue. I mean, the government can only fund itself by taking from what the people produce. So when the economy goes down, so, do, so does government revenue. The, the 2021 budget forecast uh, hopes that there will have the, the rolling back of mass gathering restrictions, which would be great. I hope it comes true. And Denver, of course, makes lots of tax money uh, from all the, the big events in the city. Um, the Upcoming budget of $1.3 billion is the same size budget as Denver had in, in 2010. And even though Denver voters have approved lots and lots of tax increases in that intervening decade, and that really just shows how, how bad the business decline in Denver has been. Let's get a quick take on this last point. A proposed homeless encampment in Capitol Hill received high-profile criticism this week. Formal permit applications have not yet been submitted, but a partnership, the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado and the Colorado Village Collaborative, plan to do so. The partnership would run the proposed sites and have noted that it plans to provide security and sanitation services and that the site is intended to be temporary. Natasha, your quick take on this of any sort of possible, at least in this place, a private solution to a homeless problem in Denver. Right. I think the criticism comes out of a long standing conversation in the last 10, 15 years. We're talking back to when John Hickenlooper was in the mayor's office, not heading to Washington, D.C. Denver has, has thrown a lot of money at this issue with mixed results. And I think people have frustrations about that. We saw it come up in the mayoral race um, last year, and it's still simmering today. I will say that the two groups that are going to be involved with this project are some of the most innovative minds and some of the most um, uh, active voices in dealing with the unhoused population in Denver. So um, I think that they bring fresh energy to what has been a longstanding conversation. Patty, your thoughts on what we've seen on this uh, private idea? Well, we're looking at two churches that have volunteered their parking lots for these sites, both in the Capitol Hill area. So, And they don't have to get city council approval as opposed to the previous sites that were proposed. I think it's a great idea. If anyone has been out and about, you know there are people who do want to live on the streets as opposed to being in shelters for whatever reason, animals, cars. In fact, they're going to have safe parking sites for those who want to stay in their car. They're going to be monitored. It's a good plan, and let's salute the churches that are being charitable. David, your quick take on this. Seven neighborhood groups led by Capitol Hill United Neighbors and, and others wrote a joint letter to the mayor's office and said, Everything you're doing is too opaque, too bureaucratic, and you're not engaging sufficiently with civil society groups that could at least provide some, some temporary help uh, for certain, some people. And so the neighborhood groups want to get small sites into action right away. Their words are site-specific, customized, and one that engages with the experts on the ground. And they also point out other problems, like it takes two hours now for a Denver Police Department response sometimes uh, uh, to a homeless situation. Eric, wrap it up for us. 
I'm going to be the naysayer here. Last I looked, north of 80% of Denver voters voted uh, to keep the camping ban. Uh, yes, the times have changed, but these encampments, whether they are authorized or not, uh, are inhumane for the people who live in them, and they hurt the quality of life for the rest of the citizenry of this community. They are not the answer. It's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Uh, but we got to four topics this week, which is great, so let's keep it tight. Patty. 15-year-old Preston Porter was the last person lynched in Colorado that we know of in 1900. There's a marker being put out in his honor tomorrow. You can watch it on Facebook. A horrible, tragic story of this young black kid who was killed, for, accused falsely. David. Donald Trump has not backed up his big talk about uh, ballot fraud with enough evidence that would change the election results. But even so, courts and secretaries of state and everyone else should really look carefully into alleged instances of, of fraud, uh, because even though they may not have changed this election result, they do change it. It does change local election results, and it might we might have in 2024 a very, very close race between uh, President Harris and a challenger such as uh, Governor Haley. <laughs> Let's go to Eric. My wife used to teach a class that she called spineless, spineless Critters. It was about invertebrates, but I think that title applies to so many Republicans in Washington these days who are dancing around Donald Trump, his fragile psyche, and unwilling to speak truth to him that the gig is up. Natasha. As we continue to have conversations in this country about how elections are held, I think we sometimes forget that there's people behind those elections, clerks and poll workers and just wonderful citizens who volunteer their time often um, to help keep our elections safe. So let's uh, keep the criticism where it needs to be directed, not at those individuals. Time to say something nice. Patty. Good luck to Deborah Johnson, who just took over as general manager of RTD. Thankless job. And to Phil Washington, former general manager, who's now helping Biden. David, we're making the choices about how we face today's problems only because we are alive and we have the freedom and, and liberty to make choices. So, so thank you to all the veterans, past and present, uh, who have preserved our lives and liberties. You're here. Well said. Eric. Obviously, ditto to what David said. Thank you. Uh, also, we talked earlier about Hugh McCain, the new uh, House Minority Leader, a moderate, two other moderates who survived really tough challenges in this election, State Senator Kevin Priola, State Senator Bob Rankin. Uh, this this state needs a viable, competitive two-party system. If the Republicans are ever going to come back, you need more voices and leaders like those. Natasha. Ruby Bridges' mom, Lucille Bridges, passed away. Talk about a woman who had an impact not only on her community, but the entire country and our education system. And I want to offer a very quick note about our Both Sides of the Story uh, series. If you've been watching at 7 o'clock and 7.30 throughout the fall, uh, you know that we've had an expanded tournament this year. And our championship and third place matches are next Friday at 7 and 7.30. They live up to the billing. Uh, both are third place, but especially I want to hype our championship match at 7.30 next week. Uh, two students from George Washington High School and Cherry Creek High School take on the question, is the Electoral College the best way to elect the President of the United States? And these two could have had that debate on Meet the Press. I, I know I'm biased, but they were wonderful. Be sure to check it out. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. So for everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. We'll